0: is the moment now is the moment come on we put it off long enough now. hey i'm roger kimmel smith and here is another humanist attack when Humanist attack is a project of a non-profit organization under the name the humanist being which was formed in 2020 in the state of Vermont. On this episode of When Humanists Attack, I am gleefully delighted to have as my guest, a leading voice in the international movements for peace and nuclear disarmament, Jonathan Granoff, president of the Global Security Institute. Jonathan, welcome to When Humanists
1: Attack, my friend. I don't want to be attacked by humanists, I'll tell you that. (laughs) You know why, Roger? as they can think.
0: Let me give you an introduction, Jonathan. When, when I met you, you were a Philadelphia lawyer who was representing an international lawyers group as a non-governmental organization's rep at the UN. Uh, really, it seemed to me a, an, ad, an advanced level dabbler in peace efforts at the international level and in and around the UN. Uh, But soon after that, as as my uh, humanist attacking co-host Vincent likes to put it, uh, he progressed from dabbling to meddling when he became the president of the Global Security Institute, which is an anti-nuclear group founded around the turn of the 21st century by the former U.S. Senator Alan Cranston. The Global Security Institute, under Jonathan's leadership, has proven its value in the movement by serving as a a mother hen for some of the most effective disarmament initiatives, including the the middle powers initiative at the UN, the bipartisan security group down in the Beltway, and the parliamentarians for nuclear nonproliferation and disarmament, which is a worldwide group. Jonathan circulates in a rarefied world of international lawyers, diplomats, and statesmen, active and retired, showbiz celebrities, and religious leaders of many faiths, as well as other internationally known peace movement folk, uh, perhaps especially including the Nobel Peace Prize winners. And perhaps what's most impressive of all is that in all of these milieus, uh, and, and you tell me what's the plural of milieu. He has been an organizer, you know, uh, among the international lawyers. He's the chair of the international law section of the American Bar Association I'm, 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 Task Force on uh, Nuclear task Nonproliferation. Uh, it, uh, he is the UN representative nowadays of the World Summit of Nobel Peace Laureates in the International Interfaith movement, the Parliament of the World's Religions. His title is Ambassador for Peace, Security, and Nuclear Disarmament. He's also part of advisory bodies of the Universal Sufi Council, the Bawa Muhayyiddin Fellowship, the World Wisdom Council, the Jane Goodall Institute, the Fortune Forum, uh, uh, and, and last and not necessarily least, the NGO Committee on Disarmament, Peace, and Security, where I worked for a few years and through which I met him. Now, just to sum up, this unusual combination in this man's life of participation in numerous elite worlds and service within those worlds is very likely, I think, the reason why Jonathan himself was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 2014. Okay, now you've been introduced, sir. Uh, why don't you start by talking about you know, 2021 in your life and, and, your, and the work of your organization and the threats to global security as you see them?
1: Oh, goodness. Well, 2021 is an axial period in human history. I think the last time that the world faced such a, an opportunity for such dramatic change was not uh, the establishment of the international order after the end of the Cold War or after the end of the Second World War wherein the United Nations system was created. But I would say it was in the uh, 17th century when because of ideological zealotry of Protestant reformers and adherence to the Holy Roman Empire, A third of Central Europe was decimated, and the people, since they were killing each other in the name of whose definition of Jesus' love was better and seeking eternal salvation in this bloodlust, they were going to continue killing because they weren't afraid of going to the next world in the process. And there were a bunch of people who were thinking, they were thinking, some humanists, some obviously divinely inspired, I would say, who got together and started thinking? Well, how can we stop this madness? And uh, they're mostly anonymous characters. They're they were they were wonks, like like very much like like uh, like you, Roger. Um, they were thoughtful, reflective, intelligent, open-hearted, exploratory people, willing to explore ideas without arrogance. Who in the Decades before 1648, we're having conversations. What can we do with with this situation? So in 1648, they came together in a place called Westphalia and created what we today take for granted, the modern nation states to separate these zealots who were going to continue killing each other. And we now take the state for granted. And in order to create the modern state, you had to have some kind of a identity, uh, a common culture, a common language. So if they tried to do that 150 years earlier, they would have discovered that in Lyon and Normandy, people were speaking a different language and they wouldn't be French. Or in Italy, in Naples and Milan, they were different languages. What happened in that period is a technological innovation called the printing press, which allowed for a uniform language, grammar, and thus identity, and thus you could create states. The world today is faced with utterly dysfunctional models of social organization, unable to address the existential threats that we face, not just a third, but the capacity of modern technology to destroy all human endeavors with nuclear weapons, fast burn, and a social system of commerce that generates infinite growth incompatible with the regenerative processes of the natural world, which is burning the climate, slow burn, and thus we need to look and say what are the mythical pillars of these two destructive systems that compel us to the dramatically new wisdom thinking that we need for today, just as people needed to think in the 17th century. And I'm really pleased, and this interview is evidence of that, that there is now a technological innovation we've been gifted with, at a level commensurate with the printing press and this computer discussion we're having that has created the capacity of a global consciousness and organization that must emerge out of the current crisis. That's where we are in 2021. The crisis can be summed up in the ongoing threat of over thirteen thousand nuclear warheads in the world, ready to annihilate us fast, burn in an afternoon. They're on hair trigger alert, or an economic order that is literally destroying the biological uh, regenerative processes of the planet. So it, you know, so if you look, if if you looked at say what happened in the 100 years after, or 150 years after Westphalia, yeah, you could get into different systems. Some were monarchies, some were liberal democracies. The United States system comes out of the uh, idea of the legitimacy of the government coming from those who are governed, but there were other models. But the, right. state, the state as an institution was the transformative moment. Uh, that's right. my point. And today, today, human security at a global level is the transformative focus we have to obtain. We have to to see security as a global human common good that transcends national boundaries because the threats that we face, the pandemic and the next pandemic, because that's what nature does, nuclear weapons, the topsoil, protecting the topsoil, the water table, the health of the oceans and the climate are all global, and they affect the human security of people's daily lives everywhere. And human security begins with the concept of how do people live? Not how does the state live, but how do people live? Are they secure with their health, with their food, with their neighborhoods, with their institutions of their daily lives? And in a sense, in the 17th century, it was the idolatry of uh, it was the idolatry of the institutions that was forgetting the purpose of the institutions. Remember the purpose of the church was to promote love, but the institution itself became uh, a, a cause of violence. And um, today the purpose of the state is to provide security to its people, but it's become an end in itself. And this is a moment uh, of twenty twenty one, because of this this this, this uh, juncture of the moral imperative and the practical necessity that will drive the coming change.
0: Well, yeah. So let's stay on this the uh, the institutions that that carry on, you know, according to their own rules and for their own purposes and structure our our minds and our language and terminology i've heard you talk about this you know you wanted to talk about this in terms of uh your your missing why of modernity spiel it sounds like you've already introduced it go on
1: well no that's well i don't spiel i don't know if it's a spiel roger
0: Oh Well, all right. Perhaps, perhaps that's the limitation of my ears.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a compliment. <laughs> um, uh, the, 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 the modernity's dilemma is that we're the first civilization in which the pursuit of the good and the pursuit of the real get disconnected. So whys and hows get confused. Um, so you end up with uh, law without justice, medicine without healing, education without character, philosophy without the pursuit of truth, art without beauty, um, um, and uh, medicine without healing, and um, and uh, weapons without bringing security, and a financial system that doesn't generate goods and services. So we need to have art with beauty, philosophy pursuing truth, financial system that provides goods and services, and uh, security. Uh, based on meeting human needs, et cetera. But that's a more profound conversation, I think, than talking about the political moment. This, that conversation is perennial. The particular moment is an existential threat that needs new social organization to address it. And I'm not at all pessimistic about it because um, we came very close to losing the United States, in the last few months. But our legal system, which is the foundation of the United States, we the first nation founded by a legal instrument, the, the legal system met the stress test in 60 cases in which the most right-wing conservative Trump-appointed Federalist judges upheld the rule of law. And the rule of law is what the American identity is. And that premise of the rule of law is now globally recognized and even tyrants pay the price of hypocrisy with it. And there's very few places where they wantonly openly, uh, you know, enforce a mad uh, kind of uh, totalitarianism. Yeah, there's totalitarianism in many countries. But it's not, it's, it, it's not uh, they, they, they pay the price of hypocrisy. They will not say we are doing away with the rule of law. We've won that argument. And what was the first thing that happened with Joe Biden? What was his message? To the new president of the United States, most powerful man in the world, most powerful country in the world. It's kind of, he's a soft-spoken guy, he's not really eloquent. But what did he do? He called a summit on the climate. And what happened,
0: he did, he asked to do, said he would do that and he did that.
1: And what happened, was there any head of state that came there and said, oh, the climate's a hoax? The science is bogus? No, they all said, we need science for our own survival. Well, you know, we spent four years with the head of our country of the United States lying. Uh, Well, I don't know if he was lying because lying implies that you know something. But completely, mm. completely in a realm of uh, a realm of 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 superstition, fear, and uh, untruth. Now, now we have the head of the free, so-called free world pursuing truth, and then of course we were living under the regime of a buffoon, uh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, who distorted you know the whole the whole thing. And but we're getting back on track. People, are see, people have looked over the abyss, and they're saying, wait a minute, we, it's time to go back. It, this is an opportunity for, we're thinking matters. Humanists and spiritually awakened people have to bring heart and wisdom to these issues. And heart and wisdom doesn't necessarily come up with conclusive answers. It comes up with cooperative processes. In which well, the best be of be different say. systems and ideas can can be fed in. We can learn a lot from the Chinese. They view community and social responsibility very highly, and Lord knows they need to learn a lot about dissent and variety of points of view from us.
0: Yes. You know,
1: uh, but you know, but they pulled several hundred million people out of poverty. It's not it's not a small matter. We can learn a lot about about human, uh, human uh, heart from, the people, from people in India. You go there and you see people who have nothing materially, but a huge sense of dignity and a smile on their face and love in their communities. And it's, it's overwhelming, but Lord, they need a lot to learn about social organization and the value of debate, dissent, and respect for reason. And we in America, we need to learn a lot about the value of community and cooperation, and trust, and uh, and and the and the sacred, and the, sa- the universality of the sacred, and respect for nature. But we don't. We do pretty well in terms of social organization and getting stuff done when we get focused, and we respect and we respect dissent very highly in our in our in our educational institutions. On the other hand. We have this great great divide between the intelligentsia we discovered and the the rest of the population, where the rest of the population is pissed off at the arrogance of the intelligentsia, telling them what to do and, and subverting democracy so that our institutions are not serving their needs. So you might have an increase of employment, but not a living wage. And they blame the intelligentsia for that. They blame the rich and privileged. And they're right. So this is a time in which discussion and hearing one another is so important. And I'm pleased to say we have we have a lot of people coming back into government with that attitude. And we have a culture that is very open. You know, you're a generation younger than me, Roger, and you're and you and get younger, there's an even greater sense of openness. So I'm very, I'm very optimistic.
0: I, I'd like to hear you talk about uh, your working specifically in the interfaith uh, scene and community what, you know what are how do you see your role there? what are the opportunities you're you know in terms of intervening in that space and
1: Well, oh uh, that's a very broad subject because I've been doing it for a long time but I would... well, right
0: and, and but I've, I've never gotten a beat on it really
1: well. Uh, first, I would urge everybody to go and watch the nuclear prayer, and that will answer your question because you'll see George Shultz. Last, may he rest in peace. He reached hundred and moved on. But George Shultz, you know, a Republican Secretary of State, William Perry, Secretary of Defense. Uh, Ambassador Thomas Graham, who negotiated the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, and who was the chair of the Thomas Merton Society, by the way, and I recommend Hmm. anything by Thomas Merton, great Catholic mystic. Um, uh, Ambassador James Goodby, who was so important in helping to end the Cold War. Sidney Drell, who used to run the Los Alamos Laboratory. Bishop William Swing, who founded the United Religions Initiative and myself and Monica Willard, who represents the United Religions at the UN, I call it a video of mostly old white men, but but praying together for a nuclear weapons-free world. So, you know, I mean, Republican, Democrat, diplomats, military leaders, and an activist finding common ground on the moral imperative coming from the heart, that nuclear weapons are unworthy of civilization. So I have found, so I've been involved in the interfaith movement for decades. It began, really, really kind of came out of a group called the Temple of Understanding that was pushing it early on. And then in 1993, there was the uh, centennial of the Parliament of the World Religions. The first Parliament was in 1893, when hmm. globalization was first beginning, mm-hmm. and that one, there was a guy Swami Vivekananda from India who stopped the show, who began his speech, and very dignified. My my dear brothers and sisters, well, to have a man of color come to to Chicago in 1893 and call people brothers and sisters blew, he, he blew people away with that. He's an absolutely brilliant scholar of, of Vedanta and Indian philosophy. And, but they couldn't do another gathering of the world's religious and spiritual leaders for a hundred years hmm. because the world was in chaos. World War One, hmm. World War Two, the Cold War. So in 1993, they had this centennial and I went to that. And I was so moved by the experience. Um, I went and did a, a dialogue uh, on the subject of the transformation of the heart, because that's where I think everything always begins uh, and where change has to begin. Um, but couldn't get any substantive issue in. All they wanted to talk about was the value of interfaith discussion. Then I met this group in New York with the Temple of Understanding with, um, James Parks Morton from St. John the Divine, the largest cathedral in America, who was a dynamic political civil rights leader, and and he was working with Kofi and with uh, Bujas Bujas Ghali in the 50th anniversary celebrations of the UN. And I got involved with him trying to bring the world's religions to the table of making peace amongst the peoples of the world, with the premise that we won't have peace amongst the world's peoples, if we don't have peace amongst the world's religions, that, uh, and that uh, we, we help put together the interfaith services for the UN and, uh, and the celebrations of the 50th anniversary. And he asked me to chair the uh, visions for the 21st century of religious leaders from all over the world. And I discovered that they really all uh, have aspirations that are concordant, And most of them are much more evolved uh, when you get them together. They want to bring their best forward. And the best thing that I saw was at the Millennium, there was a Millennium Peace Summit at the UN. Ted Turner funded it. And uh, he he gave a great speech. He said, well, I I read all your stuff and everything, but I mean, can't you guys just get along? (laughs) But... (laughs) There, so there were two presentations that really affected me that I want to share. First of all, you had the General Assembly of the UN room filled for three days. There were over 300 of the world's top religious leaders. And really, there were, it was really a broad section of mainstream, progressive, conservative, everything, from the, all of the religious leaders. The one that affected me was an Inuit elder came and said that, um, he said, we have an oral history of at least 40,000 years. So we know where we live and we're part of the environment as part of our body. We understand it. And we're seeing lakes that shouldn't be here. This was, this was early, this was nine, this was 2000. This is you know, over 20 years ago. And he said, um, I, wanna, I have a message, I have a message to my brothers and sisters from the South, from the, from the, from the North, from the North. Um, you have a technology that is melting the ice of the polar ice cap. You need a technology to melt your hearts. I will never forget that line. <laughs> the other one was Billy Graham's couldn't come, so his daughter came and his daughter, gave a talk about all of the problems in the world. And, uh, and she said the reason for all of these about nuclear weapons and climate and environment and everything. And, and, and she said, the reason of these we have these problems is people are not straight with God. So I, I'm, I'm right there with her. I got that. Then she said, and the only way to get straight with God is to be born again in the blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now I was on the stage in the, in the general You're doing so much. And I could see and I could see there were shamans there from the Amazon and shamans from Borneo and <laughs> and you know in Sumatra and I'm sure some of them were mm-hmm. going yeah we do blood <laughs> like, so I saw it and I thought of it anew you know I thought my god this is really profound She's clueless where she is, mm. so I said to her, uh, "Mrs. Graham, I'd like, Miss Graham, I'd like to speak with you uh, just privately." And we went in the green room behind the behind the uh, podium of the General Assembly, and I said, um, "I was listening very carefully to what you said, and Jesus, uh, what I'm going to say, either I'm right or I'm wrong." I'm just going to put this before you and and tell me if I'm wrong. But if I'm right, then you're wrong because we both can't be right here. What you said, Jesus never said. Jesus never said that. Jesus said to get straight, you have to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And the God he was talking about was a formless, omnipresent God of compassion. And like unto that, in other words, to express that and and to reinforce it, Treat your neighbor as yourself. I would contend that in today's world, neighborhood's a moral location, that the whole planet is our neighborhood today. Maybe he didn't mean that, but I think he did. I think he was universal. So Jesus' message was concordant with what we've heard for the last two days with, all the, with everybody speaking about the need to pursue common concerns and common ground and pursue loving kindness and compassion. But what you said, it was awfully divisive. And it wasn't anything that Jesus said. And to her credit, she didn't push back. She just said, I'd never thought of it that way. That was well, a indeed. big lesson. Now, I think she's thought about it. And I think maybe, I don't know what how she responded, but I learned a lot from that. I learned that most people don't actually reflect on the deeper meaning and value and purpose of the rites rituals and practices so coming into the present i helped put together a program at the un um, around the it was around the 800th uh anniversary of the passing of a great sufi saint in india who was the kaja moynan shisti who had brought the idea of multiculturalism and religious tolerance to india and sponsored by the Indian government. And with, of course, the full participation of the Pakistani delegation, because they venerate this saint as well there, and all the other countries, because India had the presidency of the Security Council. And uh, so it was on the theme of universal love at the UN. And with that opportunity, I went to the project at the UN called the, it was the academic project. And we had a session Uh, Deepak Chopra gave a presentation on Rumi, the great mystic poet, and I proposed that our great universities should have uh, have curriculum to encourage not only uh, interfaith uh, dialogue and a grammar, developing a grammar that you could understand other religions. Sean Casey, who was a diplomat with this mission at the U.S. State Department, came up. The head of the Alliance of Civilizations came up and the head of the law school, of Harvard Law has a negotiations project where these skills are taught. And we had, a, we had a, a, an event around it and Harvard then created a, I, I, pr- I proposed this, I'm sorry, I proposed this at this session. And there was a, 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 a woman getting her PhD from Harvard in the audience, brought it to the Dean of Harvard Divinity School He convened, he contacted me. We can put this together. He convened it. And then they now have a program at Harvard to encourage that kind of interfaith dialogue and experience, not just theology, but experience. And that has now, because you do it at Harvard, it's now spreading. And I would say I have seen now almost every major city in, at least in America and most of the world, has some form of interfaith, initiative i was at a huge interfaith initiative in kazakhstan which has 30 different ethnic groups a muslim country with a large russian orthodox population and every year in october they have a day celebrating religious diversity and cultural diversity so all over the world now this is the interfaith message has spread into academia it's now normative in cities all over the world and uh and behind it all for me is there are two arrogances that I don't think we can survive. One arrogance is my narrative of the great mystery that gives us birth and sustains life and to which we return when our bodies dissolve. My explanation for this is superior to yours. So superior, I can, I can demonize you and kill you over my preferred narrative because it is a mystery beyond language. And anybody who says that language can explain the mystery of infinity doesn't understand infinity. And uh, that's my contention. Uh, And that that once you get some sense of humility, you have the potential for loving kindness and compassion because you understand that everyone's in this same boat of mortality together. So that the other arrogance is the arrogance that through science and technology we can solve all human problems. Because if we don't solve the Mm. problem of our core humanity, we will use the tools of science and technology uh, in an ignorant fashion. So these two these two go hand in hand. So I I, so the two working for nuclear disarmament, the abuse of the gift of intelligence and science and technology, and interfaith dialogue are to me very involved with the issue of how how do we how do we become fully human? What is a humanist? It's a person pursuing the fullness of their humanity. So I have a question for you: Could a yeah. humanist could a humanist also be theologically oriented?
0: Well, I, I certainly think so. I, I mean, I think that there is a conception of it. Uh, that insists on secularity uh and you know thus wants to uh sort of rule out uh divinities or supernatural entities and put a stiff arm up against them and proceed along the 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 you know the road of rationality uh, but I think that's only a segment of you know the at least the potential group that could find something in the word or concept of humanism. And there are also, and I put myself on this side of it, uh, you know, uh, 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 people with uh, an open spiritual inclination, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, a desire not to uh, narrow a a particular path, certainly an aversion to dogma uh, and, you know, uh, yeah, I suppose it, this, this interfaith, you know, willingness to subscribe to the idea of universality uh, in different languages, to f- conceptions of faith.
1: No. Well, you just, you just triggered something in my mind, which is, as you know, a lot of people in faith-based traditions are critical of secular humanism. Mm-hmm. But you could have a spiritual humanism as well. Right. That, and you I, wouldn't. You, I certainly right? think so. This conversation about the most important question is how do we become fully human, is the most important is the most important conversation we have to have. In other words, um, it, because if we if we do every if we if we have every other conversation and we don't focus on our universal human human commonality, uh, we won't get together. We won't we won't be able to solve the dilemma of pursuing security by threatening by threatening to annihilate the entire future of humanity. I mean, people have not been, they haven't had the emotional capacity to come to grips with the absolute horror of nuclear weapons, of what they are. They're not just big weapons. They're existential, they're not existential in the same thing. It ends the possibility of future souls coming into this wondrous creation and living, learning, and loving. That is an incredible arrogance that we would organize ourselves to pursue security through this means, I mean, just you just step back and and say, can't we do better than this? You know, can't we can't can't we do better? But this idea of humanism. So, would you consider Socrates as one of the founders of the humanist movement, and that he relied so strongly on uh, on reason and dialogue?
0: Uh, you know, our director uh, Chris may disagree, but I would say absolutely, and you know. Uh, 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 there's all of this intellectual tradition open to being considered a humanist tradition, but, I think, but your questions are getting at you know, the underlying fact uh, uh, that uh, we don't really have and can't really claim a, uh, a, a really cogent language of what is humanism's history. You know, what is its tradition? There is this large group of people who are unchurched, you know, who are uh, religiously none of the above. This is what polling or, you know, uh, what certain polling questions, because of perhaps the way they've been asked, is giving us uh, at the present time. And so we wonder if part of the market for a program such as this is. Uh, those all right. Welcome to humanism. This is what you are and have always been. But what in the world is it? You know, to whom does it connect? You no. Know, how broad? How broad is it? And is it in fact a tool for human survival?
1: I would think so. I mean, right. Uh, I, well, I think almost all philosophies that grapple with the serious issues have a place at the table, and that's what interfaith dialogue is so valuable because you learn other points of view. But I. Uh, could I share a story of my of a, of a of a of an experience I had in Greece where this issue was pertinent? Of course. Yeah. Okay. So I was uh, I was uh, invited by the foreign ministry for a uh, week long discussion with other experts on international peace and security and nuclear weapons policy uh, there in Athens, and I had several days there, and my wife and I went to the uh, uh, overlooking Athens, you see these buildings that were built and the the, the, the the majesty of these temples that they had. And you just imagine if you were like a peasant in, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, seeing this, you'd think these people, they, they, they walk on water, they can do anything if they could build these temples and these statues. And it's so awesome. And so we were there and I just, my my heart said, well, This isn't really the origin of Western civilization. There's other places with things like this. I mean, look at the pyramids. Look at the, you know, there are other cultures that have done some, look at, look at, look. go down to the Yucatan. You got these cities with pyramids and things. This is is spectacle. Who challenged the spectacle? Socrates. He questioned the whole edifice. Mm -hmm. And I just felt... Where is he? And th- there's a forest next to the spectacle. And I just was compelled to go there. I just felt something. I grabbed my wife and, and she's, she's very, very tolerant and, and, and just loving. I mean, I'm married to an incredibly wise woman. And she can tell when I'm on or off. And if I was off, she would have said, I'm not on. I'm not going with you. But I was on. And, she, and I said, we got to go over there. So we... next next, when there's pine forest there we're going up it and there's a trail and there was a clearing and in the clearing you could see the harbor and there was a sign that said Socrates's cell this is where the night before his disciples come to him and say Socrates you can escape the guards are going to let you escape. You can see the boat in the harbor. You could see it from there. And he said, "No, I don't have to escape. I know where I'm going. I've seen the immortality of my soul. And if I were to escape, I would be denying the importance of all of the virtues that I've taught my whole life. And despite the fact that I have been in unjustly adjudicated, and convicted by a jury of 500. That's the size of the jury that tried him. The rule of law is so important for the community. I must uphold the rule of law, and I have no fear or worry. And they're crying, don't leave us, master. Just give me the hemlock. Don't worry about it.
0: Why does he do that? sounds so much like Dr. King's mountaintop speech the night before he died.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely,
0: I've, not, I've been over the mountaintop. I've seen it. I don't need to do anything, I, right? I'm I'm, not, uh, not, I'm afraid. not, afraid of
1: any man. You know? And he and he takes he takes he takes he ta- he, he he takes the hemlock and yeah. very peacefully yeah. throws, his, throws his body away. So I fell on my knees, and I started praying in gratitude. And it was a clear sky and a sun shower came. It was the sweetest rain you could imagine. It was like every raindrop was, was like a flower petal. It was so beautiful. And it was, I was just so filled with gratitude for what this man did for Roger and Jonathan, that he that he, gave, he did this. If he'd gone the other way, the supremacy of the rule of law as a principle would not have gone into the public dialogue and appeared appeared in the Renaissance, in in the library in Florence, where people read this story and said, wow, what an idea, the rule of law. Not superstition, not status, not symbols, but reason. This was a man who valued reason and wisdom. Oh, I was just so overwhelmed, but then this thought came to me. This is where the tour guides should take people. They should reenact his last days. They should reenact his trial. This is what people need to know. Not that they build a big temple and had some nice statues. Not that those things are, you know, not beautiful and awe-inspiring. But even more awe-inspiring was this human being who challenged all of this and said, okay, they're okay, but there's a higher value. There's your immortality. You can achieve it. And he's, he, you know, like Jesus, he's saying, I got good news for you. You can get there. Okay, so I had this thought. More people should be here appreciating this. I finished my prayer, and there was this there were two benches there in this clearing, and you, anyone who's listening can go there. There are two benches, and on one of the benches was this old man. And I went and sat down next to him, and then my wife came and sat down, and he said to me, and I quote, I'm the oldest man in Athens, and I have been everywhere. I was a shipping captain, and I've traveled the world over. And I'm like, this is like a Socratic story, you know? It's like a parable. And he says, "Um, uh, what can I do for you? And I said, "Uh, you could tell me something of wisdom that would be a benefit to my journey. And he paused and from a very deep place, he said, 30 years ago, a couple like you and your wife came here and they too understood what happened here and how important and valuable it was. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) In other words, if only four people in 30 years understand the value of a man giving himself up out of love for virtue and his fellow human beings. Roger, Well, my wife was there, we just need one more, and we got four. <laughs> we don't need 12. He said four is enough.
0: Uh, but if the tour buses brought people there, would there be more of us?
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to uh, Athens to, um, to, you know, to help work on nuclear policy, uh, but I got so much more uh, from it. And I want to share with anybody that's listening, if you commit to serving the highest love that you're able to, uh, to find within yourself, you'll be given lessons that you could not possibly have arranged for yourself. And right now, the world needs more people committed to coming out of the closet and saying, I really believe in the power of loving kindness and compassion. I really believe in universal, uh, the universality of the human condition. I really believe in the value of justice. I'm not going to be quiet at my law firm, at my hospital, at my school. I am going to put loving kindness and compassion first and foremost. And ask questions of leaders. What are you doing to bring these values into the forefront? Are you are you separating us, or are you bringing human unity? And the uh, you know the, this I met this great I lived with and studied with a great Sufi master who, who who said, "Separate from yourself that which separates you from others." Uh, so what? And, and and he said the same things that separate us: anger, falsehood, jealousy, vanity, pride. Uh, not only separate us from one another, they separate us from ourself. Certainly. And the qualities of compassion, humility, love, uh, peacefulness, uh, tolerance, uh, those qualities bring us together as human beings and also bring us together with the source. That's, 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 the, that's, the, that's the dynamic. Because if you don't have those qualities, you can't bring them into action. You can't have a peace movement run by people who, who are not at peace. Um, uh, well, so you can.
0: It, it, would, be, it, it won't would just work. be another one in your you know, forgotten why. Yeah, it, uh, won't list. it
1: won't work. It won't work. It won't work. Um, uh, so you asked about 2021. We're at a time in history where the actions that this generation, that we do, will be impactful in a unique way for generations to come because institutions now because of, the, of the, this sort of time out of a, of a year of time out uh, has brought a lot of people to be thinking again. And the people who are running our militaries and running our international affairs and running our major institutions have to be challenged to because we're now driving, we're driving Teslas on roads that were designed for horses and buggies. And we want to drive Teslas. We want to drive. We want to drive a modern car that is commensurate with the modern world.
0: I wanted to ask you some questions about your yourself and your background. You know how growing out of the. You know how a person gets to be Jonathan Granoff. You know, I, starting I, fairly early. That's
1: I, uh, mean, that's. I mean.
0: I mean. Well, uh, I mean. I know that your your mother uh, was a, this well known singer, a big band canary, as they used to call them in the 40s, and your father was an A-list, uh, a Hollywood publicist. You know, so I would think that out of that, you develop some very uh, unusual, you know, uh, privileges and, and capabilities and perspective.
1: Well, I kind of grew up backstage, really. I saw, yeah. I saw so much of how the American culture was created, and my, my dad was an impresario and produced lots of television shows and he did lots of things. In fact, in fact, this is what, and my mother was the top uh, pop singer in the 50s, fift- in the fifties, but I don't know if you can see this, but if you, if you can see that, I don't know if you can see, Bud Granoff Productions.
0: Bud Granoff
1: Productions. This is, this is Lena Horn,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the name of it is now. And what's on it is Lena Horn singing about to the tune of Havana Gila. We want our freedom now, now, now really <laughs> blowing in the wind, blowing in the wind by a guy named right. Bob Dylan Lena Horne doing blowing in the wind oh, and another one called Silent Spring you know mm. now my dad produced this in the 1960s Lena to bring the message of blowing in the wind and we want our freedom now into pop culture and to get money for the civil rights movement and to legitimize legitimize overcoming racism in our pop culture. I didn't appreciate, I, it was only recently I came across a, a, a bio of my dad that hmm. he had done this. So I searched hmm. the internet and I found this and I just got it yesterday. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm just goosebumps, <laughs> my, dad was, my dad was so smart that he was trying to bring the message of the civil rights movement to, to pop culture. I mean, you know, wow. So anyway, that was, that, that was, that was very powerful. Uh, yeah, and my mother, my mother was a big enough, well, my dad was a publicist for people like Frank Sinatra and, you know, very Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and uh, the yeah. Copacabana. And so he was, you know, he was in the big leagues of show business. And the this, the house that I grew up in was a place with lots of these brilliant people. I can remember Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and Norman Lear being here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, my mother was a was a, iconic. Like she had the number one record in 1954 and 1955. When you when you see the um, the, the, the people coming back from World War Two, you know, kiss me once and yeah. kiss me twice and right. kiss me once again. It's, it's been, been a long, long time. time. That's my mom. and um, Harry James. Yes, yeah, she was the lead singer in the Harry James Band and the Torsey Brothers. So as a kid, you know, to go out with your mom to a restaurant or any place, and all these people like treating your mom as some, you know, as like this huge, larger than life being, but she was, to me, she, I mean, she's just mom. And to see, and, and, oh, and and being around lots of people with enormous charisma. So I grew up not impressed by fame, not impressed by mere charisma, not impressed by the formula of making something popular. The stuff that Socrates might have said is in the realm of sophistry and distraction. And also seeing that even in the midst of this madness, virtue could be expressed. And, you know, and that... Seeing seeing through some pretty thick surface, you know. Well, a lot of the people in that business have a real open heart, and that's how they connect with people. They really, you know, and I, but I saw the cost of fame and, and, and distraction that my mother paid. That, you know, that people get painted. Our, we have a culture that's so personality driven. And uh, what is the Greek word for personality? It's mask. And in the Greek cosmology, there's the, your persona, your mask, your personality, your body, your, 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 your identity. But within it is the psyche or the soul. The soul is like light and universal and formless and infinite. But the persona is a mask, it's a, it's a box. If you, mm-hmm. if you get too identified with that, you suffer because, because you don't get to keep it. It's, it, it's not really where you're, it's you know, when you put your head on the pillow at night, your personality doesn't go with you. Your conscience does. So just imagine, uh, just do a thought experiment with me. Imagine, imagine tomorrow you treat everybody without any sense of caring for their well-being, without any recognition that within their mask is a soul that's sacred, divine, infinite, just like yours, just like the thing that you hold most dear, your core self that in other human beings is that same preciousness. And you forget about it. And you just you just use them for your own most selfish gratification, ego gratification, sensual gratification, economic gratification. You don't care anything about their well-being. Now, imagine how you feel at the end of that day when you get to bed and you put your head on the pillow. Imagine how you feel after a day of doing that. Now, if you just- used to doing the other juxtapose juxtapose the other where you as an experiment just just a thought experiment you might even try it don't try the first one try this one you treat everybody with the same kindness and love and caring and 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 sense of dignity and beauty that you want for yourself that you recognize that every life is is sustained and breathing along with it with you with this gifted with life by the same power that gives you life that 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 everyone you meet is, uh, is 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 precious and important and valuable and, and worthy of love, and came into this world as an infant just like you, and responded to their mother's love, and that uh, and that soon and soon they will be leaving just like you or I will be, and that you and you try and bring as much goodness into the world as possible, and then think of how it is when you put your head on the pillow and I think the thought experiment is very, very powerful to reflect on that. Now, think about what the nations of the world did after World War I. They did the first thought experiment to Germany. And, uh, and then in America, we destroyed the League of Nations because we wanted, to, we wanted to be the top. We didn't want anybody, we didn't want to recognize the rest of the world. And we were blessed with the chaos of Nazism and World War II. At the end of World War II, this nation, where you and I are citizens, exercised the Marshall Plan, set up the United Nations. The Marshall Plan was, it was both practical and that it challenged tyranny of communism, but more importantly, it built up our, it built up the vanquished. We ended up with Japan and Germany as trading partners and democracies. It was an expression, of enormous generosity. We put a lot of money into doing this. And the payoff was the security of the security of decades, of decades of relative peace in the world after, after decades of horrible war. So when people say, oh, well, the world's a Hobbesian, you know, place of dog eat dog. Well, no, I'm sorry. I mean, if you look at the examples of successes in history, they're guided by wisdom and virtue. And the failures are guided by fear and arrogance.
0: We just have to wrestle with it, you know? I mean, because there's really no way around. Uh, Humans have fear. Humans have selfishness. You know, uh, uh, material conditions, almost almost irrespective of that. You're going to come across that, whether it's, You know, the the fear from scarcity or it's the the, you know, uh, the arrogance of power on the other end. You know, we came through four years of this. I I mean, there's a, a there's a sentence I've seen that you, I guess, like to quote from a an early 90s report from Congressman James Leach, Republican of Iowa with uh. About the UN in the early 90s, he was pro UN funding, and and the sentence is only an optimistic assessment of human nature makes the prospect of greater world law and order imaginable. Uh, you know. That, so I, I I hear the message of that. You know, we've got to like we've got to activate the better angels of our nature if we're going to progress and evolve, A- and leaders need to offer vision and optimistic direction that people can connect to, because if they're not, they're offering, you know, a a carnage, carnage in, carnage out. But but you can get sort of high on the lofty words of optimism and better angels because, you know, security can't just be based on an appeal to higher values that ignores the fact that we have fear and selfishness. That's also part of human nature. That's the lesson Socrates, we, uh, you know, that's, of the Trump administration.
1: That's why Socrates' sacrifice is so important, because he recognizes the, the, the imperfection of the situation. Mm-hmm. He is unjustly accused. He is sentenced to death. Right. And yet he, he gives himself up for the higher principle, an act of love that you and I have benefited from. And uh, you know that, I mean, I'm not saying that, uh, I mean, that's why he's heroic. That's why he's heroic. You could, you could parallel Jesus sacrifice similarly. Um, but uh, I think you could, you could look at the good, the good foundation of the United States being founded on an ought. I'm talking about an ought, and that's what's needed is a compass, then the ought, where do we wanna go? And the art that the U S is founded on is an art. We, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all all are equal. Well, my goodness that, you know, not a cynic, but a a quote realist could say, (laughs) well, what about black people? What about women? Mm -hmm. When he said it, huh? What about men, white men without property, they weren't equal. And you know what, even today, uh, I mean, I'm short and stocky and, uh, and I don't have any hair and, you know, I'm not equal to a young a young person who's you know who's healthy and slim and etc. cetera. We're not oh, e-
0: say, I would say you look absolutely like you ought to look.
1: <laughs> I would say I look absolutely like I I, I do look. But uh, the 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 point being that uh, that human beings uh, need vision and values. Uh, that's that that's necessary to pursue our humanity, and and we need law because we can't trust we can't trust ourselves all the time i mean it, i mean we we we, we do have I an mean, you know, just think about how much you're trusting people when you drive a car you're trusting that other people are going to recognize stop signs you yeah, know
0: that common sense you you're know?
1: trusting their common sense there's
0: nothing we have nothing in common without it
1: yeah you're not you're not you're you're trusting they're not going to be a sufficient number of people out there driving drunk that you can't drive i'm sure there, the world's mm-hmm. not ever going to be perfect or it would be heaven and we wouldn't have any lessons to learn. But the point is, we people who, are, who see the possibility of making things better have a duty to come out of the closet and and, 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 and and this is a time in which these values are essential, are essential to be part of the public discourse. Otherwise, otherwise the madness of the madness of uh of 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 fascism or tyranny or you know enslavement which is very much part of human history and i think that anybody who who, like i mean i'm putting forward high stuff here but Mm. i'm not saying that this is easy i'm just saying it's worthwhile to pursue that's all yeah because what's the choice cheap thrills
0: well, here <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just I just have one more thing. I guess I feel I must ask, and, it, and, and it's big enough. Uh, so let me end with this. You know, since we started and talked a lot about getting to 2021 and back to the 17th century, I want to ask you about about the future. Tell me what you think human survival a- a- and evolution through a 21st century would look like a few generations from now, if we can make it through without being wiped out, you know, how will we have changed? You know, I I mean, I know that it depends largely on uh, whether we can continue for a few more decades without any nuclear wars.
1: I, I, I don't really, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I'd have to get back to you on that one, Roger. We'll have to have another session because I haven't thought a lot about that. Uh, I have thought a lot about what do we need to do now? Well, no, I mean, I could say that we, that there's some things we have to do. We have to, uh, we have to understand the natural world's regenerative processes okay. as, a, as a roadmap. That we can't put them at risk so therefore if we're going to get as indigenous
0: civilizations have you know
1: that we will have to recognize the limits of growth of uh, or that growth that is done with a different metric of success that's one um so we'll we'll be living if we survive it will only survive if nature thrives so, so we will have, so so the idea of the, the singularity in which we're merged with machines and put chips in our heads so we can think more mm-hmm. quickly. That's just a lot of that's just nonsense. We've Sci-fi. Got, we've, mm-hmm. It's yeah, it it it's dystopian. We we have we have to learn that that uh, this principle. Um, uh, if if we leave, if humans leave the planet Earth, the ants will do just fine. But if the ants leave, we'll only live for a few more months. <laughs> they clean up the garbage, so we've got to become more like ants. We've got to become ant men, uh, in which we're a lot humbler, a, a lot more, a lot, a lot more quiet inside, and a lot, and we walk more softly on the planet, or we're not going to walk on the planet at all. Now, how we do that, I don't know, but I know the things we got to do now. Now we got to take the nuclear weapons off of alert. We got to retire the intercontinental ballistic missile weapons because they're first strike weapons. We have to pledge never to use nuclear weapons first and then work toward a treaty that, will, that, will, uh, that the nuclear weapon states will have confidence in that will actually give us verification and enforcement mechanisms. We have to, uh, we have to change the way in which we uh, measure productivity in, uh, in producing goods and services such that we understand that we cannot uh, cut cut the cut the, the the limb of the tree that we sit on, the biological systems of the planet, and and more important than anything, we need to uh, 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 assert a value system that's based on pursuing a culture of peace and dignity, rather than uh, rapacious greed and selfishness. These are these are not none of this is new. Uh, it's just how do we do it today? Whatever discipline you're in. Get on, you know, get on board with your highest values. Um, for me, I'm a lawyer, I'm a trained in the law. So I look at treaties and legal instruments, but we haven't talked about that. I mean, because that's kind of, you know, it's boring to anybody who doesn't, doesn't understand the value of them. But we did start out talking about the treaties of Westphalia, but they wouldn't have come about without the thinking that took place. Without, without lots of people questioning And remember, they were doing this in the midst of carnage. Right now, we're really lucky, Roger. We have, you know, uh, well, it is in the midst of the the battle with the virus is pretty severe. Millions of people are dying, but it's nothing compared to what was happening in the 17th century in Europe. Nothing. Nothing compared
0: to what would happen if we had only one or two nuclear detonations.
1: Absolutely. Or nothing would happen if we if we'd actually uh, drank uh, a disinfectant as a, as a cure.
0: <laughs> Touche.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, listen, I'll be glad to come back. I, you know, we could just go on. Uh, uh, you know. it's,
0: it's just thrilling to, uh, you know, turning turning on uh, the Jonathan Granoff. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough.
1: Well, thank I you. Think- I mean, I mean, thank you for letting me uh, uh, share from my heart the best things that I've learned. Thank you.
0: An honor. And thank you for watching all the way to the end of uh, whatever this medium is. And peace be unto you.